You know, one of the reasons I know that Debbie is deeply in love with me, for many years and through countless worship services, she has had the misfortune of standing right beside me while I sing. My voice is quite off pitch, it's quite off tune, but I still sing with enthusiasm. And so I could really use with, and I think her hearing would really benefit from having my vocal cords retuned to actually be on key. We're doing this series of messages now called Retune. And it's based in the book Song of Songs, or Song of Solomon, some people will call it. And really what this series is, is a follow-up series to the series we just finished in the book of Genesis. And you'll recall in that series, in Genesis chapter 3, we see the first act of rebellion by human beings against God. The first sin, the first deliberate choice to say, I want to go out on my own. I don't want to be accountable to my creator, to God. I want to be self-determining, all those kinds of things. And so they say, enough with you, God, and they sin against him and turn their back on him. And it's interesting because if you read in Genesis chapter 3, verse 7, the first overt sign of this alienation between God and the man and the woman, and also the fracture between the husband and the wife, the first overt sign of this is there's a problem with their sexuality. It says they were ashamed. They recognized that they were naked in verse 7. They go and hide themselves, and they're ashamed. I would contend that the book of Song of Songs is God making a statement about the redemption of sex, sexuality, and marriage. That despite our sin, despite our rebellion, that because of the cross, because of Christ, because of his death and resurrection, that one of the things that that has given to us is the possibility of a good relationship and a healthy, vibrant sex life is possible this side of heaven. Now, because of sin, it won't be perfect. Not like it was in Genesis chapter 2, when they were having sex and they were in the perfectly perfect environment as husband and wife, and there was no shame, there was no deals between them, no fracture. So because of sin, it's not perfect this side of heaven, but it's a redeemed one. And this is so very important because so many people on our little planet are living with the shame of an unhealthy, broken sex life. And this book is about God's redemption of that. It's about dating. It's about marriage, about sex as God intends it. Let's pray for a moment. Father, as we bow and look into your word now, how grateful we are for you and for your word. And we pray, Father, that first and foremost, we would have a deep openness for what you want to say to us through your word. We pray that it will be much more than simple information gathering or, oh, that's interesting or that was boring or whatever. We would pray that it would be transformative. And so by your spirit, we ask you to do that in our lives. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Last week I said 
that when you're pursuing a dating relationship, which may one day lead to a marriage, it's more important to become and to allow God to help you become the right person than it is to choose the right person. Now, it's important to choose well, and there's no, no problem with choosing well. You want to choose well, but more important than that is allowing God to make us and shape us into the right person. And so this is part two today of a two-part talk of, on the idea of attraction. What do we want God to build into our lives? What are the values we, and the characteristics we want him to build into our lives to help us become the right kind of person? Because if indeed God is calling us to be married, and he certainly doesn't call everyone to be married, and they're single people equally loved and valued by God, absolutely. But if he's calling us into that, he wants us to become something and what we find is, is that then when we're pursuing that dating relationship or a marriage or an improvement of our marriage is that we tend to attract that kind of person. And we also become, when, when it's a priority for us, we become much more aware of it in others. We're much more perceptive about it and we recognize it more quickly and more readily in others. And we're going to see these ideas of attraction in this book in the opening couple of chapters. So if you have your Bible, I'm going to ask you to turn with me to the book of Song of Songs, which is found like right in the middle, kind of open to, you'll probably come to Psalms, come to the right a little bit. If you've gone to Isaiah or Jeremiah, you've come a little too far, come back to the left. I remind you that this book is a series of probably 23 love poems. And they're love poems between Solomon and the Shulamite bride. And then there's also some friends that make observations about the nature of the relationship they see going on between Solomon and the Shulamite woman. More than likely, they're young, and depending on the part of the book that you're looking at, they're either on the precipice of getting married or they're married already. So last week, we looked at two of the four Qualities. And before I do that, I want to read to you from Song of Solomon, chapter 1, beginning in verse 7 through verse 6 of chapter 2. So when it says beloved, that's the Shulamite speaking. And so she says this in verse 7, Tell me, you whom I love, where you graze your flock, and where you rest your sheep at midday. Why should I be like a veiled woman? beside the flocks of your friends. So then the friends make a comment about the nature of their relationship. If you do not know, most beautiful of women, follow the tracks of the sheep and graze your young goats by the tents of the shepherds. Solomon responds and says, I liken you, my darling, to a mare harnessed to one of the chariots of Pharaoh. Your cheeks are beautiful with earrings, your neck with strings of pearls. They will make you we will make you earrings of gold studded with silver. While the king was at his table, my perfume spread its fragrance. My lover is to me a sachet of myrrh resting between my breasts. My lover is to me a cluster of henna blossoms from the vineyards of Engedi. How beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. 
How handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is verdant. The beams of our house are cedars. Our rafters, our, our rafters are firs. I am a rose of Sharon, the Shulamite says, a lily of the valleys. Like a lily among thorns is my darling among the maidens. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. He has taken me to the banquet hall, and his banner over me is love. Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. So as I said, there's four qualities we want to look at. We looked at two of them last week. We're going to look at the last two today. But the first two, and the, the primary and most important one we looked at first last week, which is godly character. And we talked about the development of that and the nature of their relationship. The first comments they make about each other is the things they notice about the godly character of the other person that they are either about to be married to or are married to. And these are the thing, that's the thing that impresses them the most about each other. And so we talked about the need for God to develop that in us and then we'll be drawn to others like that. Then we talked about a posture of trust. And trust, of course, is always something that's earned. You never just give trust. It's never just granted. It's something that is truth lived out over time. And eventually, you begin to earn trust with the other person. And so we talked about um, this question, very personal questions. Am I a safe person to be vulnerable in front of? And that's how you begin to grow real intimacy. And we're going to be talking about more about intimacy next week. Am I safe to be around? Will I misuse the information you share with me about yourself? Will I use it against you? Can I be trusted enough that another person could begin to sort of reveal themselves to me? So the Shulamite last week in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1 is vulnerable in front of him about one of her deep-seated insecurities in life. And we all have insecurities. And Craig Rochelle, in writing about this, says Solomon was a man who loved her insecurities away. And we're going to see more evidence of that today. He was a man with his bride who loved her her insecurities away. And so this is a key question if you want a healthy relationship. We ask ourselves, can I be trusted? Can I be trusted for my partner to be honest with me? So the third one that we see right away in verse 7 is the idea of higher standards. If you want a biblically-based relationship, which is God's way of doing it, which is the best way to do it, Higher standards is part of the equation. And we see this in verse 7 where it says, why should, she is speaking and she says, why should I be like a veiled woman? Why should I be like a veiled woman? What does that mean when she makes this reference? Why should I be like a veiled woman? She's saying, why should I be like a prostitute? A cult prostitute, which is where, the way they would dress in those days. And so she says, listen, Solomon, I want to be right up front with you. I'm not that kind of girl in any sense. 
I'm not going to do anything that could be construed even remotely along that pathway. I have different standards. There's a number of things that I won't do for you or for any other man to get that person's attention because I have different standards. And God calls us to different standards, very different standards. So let me just, I'm going to be just real blunt about this. God says in the Word of God very clearly, no ambiguity, that His standards for a healthy, appropriate, vibrant sex life is exclusively within the relationship of marriage, in a heterosexual, monogamous, covenant environment, which simply means a marriage between one man and one woman. One man and one woman. Now somebody says, well, come on, Scott. you got to get living in the real world. Everyone's having sex before marriage. Well, many people are, I grant that. But not everyone. Don't believe that lie, first of all. But if you want a biblically-based relationship, which is by far the best way to do life, there's really only two options when you're in a relationship prior to marriage. Number one is we can say together... I'm going to honor, we're going to honor God together and obey what he says and do what he says and know that there's very good reasons, which we'll get to in a moment, for why he says what he says. That's option number one. Option number two is you can choose to sin together. Honor God or sin. Now, why is this important? Why does God say these higher standards are so important because he understands, because he created us, how we think and what we need to really make the possibility the greatest to have the healthiest relationship possible. So what he says to us is, listen, when you make these choices, you're building a foundation upon which your marriage will rest. And when you pick option number two, what you're saying is, I'm marrying a compromiser. And by the way, they're marrying a compromiser too, meaning you. Later in marriage, if you've been married for any length of time, you understand very clearly it's all about trust. Anybody that's been married for any length of time knows it's all about trust. And when the bumps come in the relationship, which they always do, in healthy, even in healthy marriages, the question starts to float up in the mind at times. I wonder if she or he, as the case may be, will compromise again. And then we look in the mirror and we ask ourselves, well, I was a compromiser too. I wonder if I will. And mistrust has a way of damaging a relationship, and it makes it not impossible, but difficult to have a really healthy relationship. When you're doubting them or doubting yourself, it causes you to hold back. It causes you not to enter in. It causes you to settle for less. And this is why God says this, because he loves you and he loves me. Because he wants the best for us. doesn't want us to settle for less than that. There's a 
grandiose lie that many, many people believe. And it's nothing but a lie. That they need to experiment sexually to see, prior to marriage, to see if they're sexually compatible. Andy Stanley, in talking about this, says, and I would agree with him, sexual compatibility is important, but it's something that can be developed, something that needs to be worked on and, and perfected, in a sense, within the marriage context. And that happens best in an environment of trust. When you can be open with one another. And that's why God says, develop this exclusively and work at it hard within the context of that covenant relationship. And it's certain, sexual compatibility is certainly not the litmus test of a great relationship. In fact, I would argue that it will cause more harm before marriage than if you don't in the long term. There's all kinds of issues that arise when you get involved in premarital sex. The obvious ones, disease, premature pregnancy, a comparison guilt if you've slept with other people that can put a damper on your relationship with the one that you're married to. And it frequently gives a false, if you're in this dating relationship, it frequently gives a false positive on the seriousness and the level of, of compatibility in the relationship. It hides deficiencies in the relationship. It distorts the positive and the negative elements of who I am or who you are or whatever the case may be. It encourages a person to overlook things. It encourages them not to be nearly as objective. And they aren't thinking as clearly. And it's very interesting when this happens. Because people never see it in themselves, but everybody else does. Your friends are sitting there thinking, that relationship is not really meant to be. They can't see it at all, though. And your family is thinking it. And of course, if you flip the coin and you're looking at your friends, you're going, how can they not see that this is not meant to be a long-term relationship? They're not thinking clearly. And then if you flip the coin back, your friends or your family are thinking to you, are thinking to themselves, that person thinks they found the right one, but we all know this is not good. And I wonder if it's too late to sit down and have a heart-to-heart -heart with them and really level with them. Premarital sex makes it way harder to see that which is obvious to everyone else. This is how much God loves you. I'm not trying to spoil somebody's fun. No way, man. It's because he loves you. That's why he sets up these boundaries. He created you. He knows how you think. I'm speaking about me here too. He knows how we think. He knows how we act in life. And so he sets up these boundaries. Now, if you're here and you're thinking, well, what everybody else apparently or supposedly is doing, I don't want to do. I want to follow the example of God has laid down for us. I want to be like the Shulamite. It's so important 
to have processed and prayed these kinds of things through before you're in a relationship, like she did. She said, hey, guy, I want you to know right up front, I have different standards than some of these others. And I have set up principles based on how I'm going to live my life, and I won't compromise on those for you or for anyone else. If you want something different, like Debbie and I, my wife and I did, and it wasn't easy not to sleep. Like, it was tough not to have sex before marriage. It was really tough. But we just had decided before we even met each other, we had some different principles in place. And then we set up some healthy boundaries and safeguards and had people speaking into our life to help us follow through with that commitment. And even though we loved each other, and again, that's another like, well, if we love each other, we better do it. Even though we loved each other deeply, with God's help, we chose to wait. And I believe this is one of the reasons for a healthy marriage that my wife and I enjoy today and many others. Now, I also know that there are some people that are feeling incredibly awkward right now. And they're thinking, you know, Scott, uh, we didn't do so good. And we made the choice to sleep together before we were married. Now let me just say to you, you can't change the past. But you can allow Christ to powerfully redeem your future. And he can and he will, if you'll let him. And I've sat with people, I've sat with couples, with husbands and wives who are holding each other's hand, and they've repented of their sin before God. You know, years ago, both of them praying and saying, God, we made sinful choices before we were married. We didn't honor you in that area of our life, and we repent of our sin right now. No excuses. It wasn't somebody else's fault. It was my choice. It was your choice, and we repent of our sin. And it's just an incredible, incredibly beautiful thing to see Jesus come and cleanse that couple and remove that sin. The Bible says like the driven snow. It's just pure. And, and God never brings it up again. I've seen husbands turn to, to wives and say, if I, you know, if I knew then what I know now, I wouldn't have let that happen and God has forgiven me, and now I look at you in the eye, and I ask you to forgive me. Please forgive me. And Jesus can cleanse and redeem. It's a beautiful thing. And then with his help and the power of the filling of the Spirit, we make different choices. Choices to have higher standards, to have God's standards. So there's godly character... There's this growing earned trust, which is always earned. There's higher standards. And then for lack of better terminology, I would just call it consistent encouragement. And you'll remember from last week, we talked about this in verses 5 and 6 of chapter 1, that she's got these insecurities. 
And her insecurity is around her physical appearance, about her skin. And she says, you know, I've had to work out in the vineyards. My brothers made me work out there in the hot Mediterranean sun, and it is really hot. I've been there, and it's damaged my skin. And she says, you know, I don't want you to stare at me, and don't stare at me because I'm, I'm embarrassed about this or whatever. And he loves her insecurities away. And he says a number of things to her to mitigate those insecurities and to melt them away. And so the first thing he does in verse 9 is he makes this very odd statement. He says, in verse 9, he compares her to a horse. And we're going, that doesn't sound so, you know, that doesn't sound like the line I want to use on my girlfriend or my wife or whatever. Um, Comparing her to a horse, it sounds rather odd to us. But here's the deal. More than likely, this is a metaphor based on ancient military strategy. So in in verse 9, he references Pharaoh. And in that day, of course, Pharaoh, the leader of Egypt, had tremendous resources. And so he would use those resources to use stallions to pull his chariots. And so the Egyptian army would be lined up, and there would be whatever opposing army over there, and they would attack with their chariots being pulled by stallions. And what the opposition figured out to do, and what they would do, is they would, take, they would have mares, mare horses, female horses, waiting in the wings, and when the chariots were charging, they would shoo the mares out in front of their army, out into the middle. The stallions would see the mares, they'd forget what they were doing, and they would chase out after them and crash into each other and there'd be confusion and the attack would get broken up and what he is saying to her is this your beauty is so overwhelming it's distracting me it's pulling me away from everything else and he's gently loving her insecurities away and because he encourages her this way She's growing up in security, which is typically something that's very important to a woman. That growing security. And many men as well, of course. And he gets that. Ask yourself, the person I'm dating or the person I'm married to, if I want to, in, want to have a better marriage, which I think we all do, what does that person need from me? What do they need to hear from me? What do they need to experience from me? I need to study them because I value them. I study them. I figure out what makes them tick and how they like to be loved. And I love them in light of that. And then he continues on in verse 15, and she responds in verse 16. He says this. Here's some more words along this line. He goes, how beautiful you are, my darling. Oh, how beautiful your eyes are doves. She responds in 16. She says, how handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. And our bed is redundant. Now here they've switched to talking about physical characteristics. As I mentioned earlier, they began by talking about the godly characteristics and the character of their lives. And that was preeminent and most important to them. But now they've shifted to physical attributes. And she says, how handsome you are, my lover. Oh, how charming. Now, here's some really, really good news for the men. If you're here as a man and you're not much to look at, This is good news for the men. Be encouraged because women are just incredible creations of God. 
And when you as a man have this kind of attitude that we see being displayed by Solomon, when you lay down your life for her, when you serve her, when you cherish her, when you value her, suddenly, at least in her eyes, you become so much better looking. Trust me. Because seriously, how do you think a guy like me got someone like Debbie? When you love a woman, God has created her to give love back to you in ways we really as men don't deserve. Now notice how this is starting to shape her. She responds to him in kind, but then she says in chapter 2, verse 1, I am a rose of Sharon, a lily of the valleys. In chapter 1, she's all insecure about her physical appearance. She says, don't, in fact, it says in verse 5 and 6, don't stare at me because of the issues that I see with my skin. Now, because of how he's been treating her in the latter part of the chapter, her insecurities are melting away. And she is saying, Solomon, you make me feel like a treasured individual, a special individual. And then he says to her, oh, Shulamite, you don't know the half of it. He says in verse 2, he says, you are a flower among all the thorns. Now, he's not saying that the other women aren't special and all that kind of stuff. He's just saying, compared to all the women in my eyes, you are a beautiful flower. And in my eyes, they're like a bunch of thorns. Chapter 1, insecure, don't stare at me. Chapter 2, cherished, special. Loved through her insecurities, cherished, adored, valued. And then we see this security continuing to grow in verse 3. Listen to what she says. Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my lover among the young men. Listen to this next phrase. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. I delight to sit in his shade. Remember in chapter 1, it's the harshness of the sun and what it's doing to her skin that's disturbing her. But when I'm around you, Solomon, I feel safe in the shade you give me. I'm protected from that which harms me, secure and safe. Now, I'm not saying that she can't take steps to protect herself. She obviously can. Women are extremely capable. But when she's with him, she feels safe. Well, man, I want to be blunt for a couple minutes here again. The Bible calls us as men to be her pastor, her provider, her protector. And as her pastor, we are called to set the tone. And again, women are extremely capable. They grow their relationship with Christ. They're called on to be self-feeding just like every one of us is. But as men, we're called to set the tone to lead spiritually, to frame our home in that context, to bring our kids, to bring our family to church, to make the house of God a priority, to set the standard. And frankly, in my opinion, in many ways, men have abdicated this. 
And it's time to stop doing that and to man up. Provider. I'm not saying she doesn't make money. Um, in fact, she make, might make more money than you do. But again, we're called biblically to set the tone. To say things like, we're going to be a tithing family. Off the top, the top, right off the top, before taxes or anything else, we are going to give generously to the work of God. And we're going to give through our, our local church. And we're going to give, and we're going to make sure, even if we don't run the finances, Debbie runs the finances, she's better at it than me. Um, we're going to make sure that there's enough money for the month. In other words, at the end of the day, there's enough money to pay the bills. You want a surefire way to have marriage problems? Just make choices where there isn't enough money for the month. You're going to have marriage problems. And people sit there and go, why am I having marriage problems? It's because we have no money. Or we're making choices with money that is not wise. Set the tone. Protector. Again, women are strong. Women can contribute to protecting themselves, not saying any of that. But the fact of the matter is that generally speaking, not in every case, but generally speaking, men have been created with about 50% more brute strength than a typical woman, generally speaking. And so God created that, us that way for a reason. One of them is so that we can lay down our life. And I'm not just talking physically here. Anybody can do that. But rather that as a man, I would choose to protect her daily. I will do my best to see that she does not get hurt. I will guard my heart. I won't look at pornography. I will love with the purity of my mind. I will give myself up for her, as it says in Ephesians 5. I will give myself up for her like Christ did the church. Now, how does she respond to this kind of environment that he's helping to create and that she's contributing to as well? How does she respond? Verses 5 and 6, she says... Strengthen me with raisins, refresh me with apples, for I am faint with love. His left arm is under my head, and his right arm embraces me. Now, interesting words here, strengthen me with raisins. Now, give me a few handfuls of raisins, you say. Did you know that back then, as well as now, raisins are seen as an aphrodisiac? Later in Song of Solomon, they talk about mandrakes in the same way, and it's an aphrodisiac as well. And she's saying, give me a few handfuls of those because I'm hot for my husband. And in verse 6, she describes a sexual posture, and she's saying, in the, in the context and the idea here is, we are going to make passionate, vibrant love as husband and wife. And this is because she feels loved, she feels special, she feels secure, and she wants to give herself willingly to him. And that's because he has given himself willingly to her. Two-way street. So we tend to attract people with a similar mindset. When we're pursuing these characteristics, when we're saying, God, would you build them into me? We tend to attract people like that. And also, we tend to be much more perceptive of those qualities in other people. 
Oh, they have the kind of standards. I can see the way, as I'm observing them, they have the kind of standards that I have. Becoming the right person is more important than choosing the right person. It's important to choose well. But it's saying, God, would you help me become the right person? Even more important. Godly character, growing trust, higher standards, and ongoing encouragement. Then our dating relationships, then our marriages will be a testimony to the goodness of God. Just as he's loved us, just as he sent his son to die and give himself up for the church, our marriages begin to represent that kind of unconditional love.